G'day, I'm Gus Wall and you're listening to the On The Road Podcast with Lumpy. You're listening to Australia's number one ski racing podcast, On The, the Road, sponsored by Coldy's Tow Bars and Bull Bars, featuring Chelsea Stevens, Jack Coldrake, Mick Kelly, Dave Bishop, Tim Horbury and Wade Bennett. My name's Mick Lumpton, now let's head to the 10. Welcome back to another edition of On The Rope Podcast. My name's Lumpy. And as usual, we have another gift pack to give away. We always give these gift packs away, but you ask what is actually in the gift pack. I can tell you right now, it's a $100 voucher from Savage Force, $80 voucher from Rubber Jungle and a t-shirt, Bullet Boats hat, Bad Lad bag and stickers, and an exclusive On The Rope Podcast subscriber t-shirt. Our last winner was John Braithwaite from Victoria. To enter this time, you need to listen to Mick Kelly's question. Then jump on our Facebook page, message the right answer through, all the answers go into a number generator, and bingo, you could win. We also have hot tips from Zig, so stick around. And don't forget to like and subscribe and share our On The Rope podcast page. Okay, our next guest on the rope is Lester Fremantle. He's a stalwart of water ski racing with a career stretching from the early 70s to this day. He is somewhat of an enigma. Somewhat shy and private, he is fiercely competitive and committed to water ski racing. Bishow managed to pull off a minor miracle when he sat down with Lester and chatted about a career that has included all the elements of an epic story. We really hope you enjoy the tale of Lester Fremantle. Well, my next guest on the On The Road podcast is uh, a man that uh, has been around and reinvented himself for many, many years in water ski racing. I don't think I've ever come across a more passionate guy in water ski racing, and uh, he's done everything in terms of racing boats and uh, getting around ski racing, but it's the great man, Mr. Lester Freeman. Lester, good morning. How are you, Dave? Nice to be here. I'm fantastic, mate. I know you're a very private guy, and I really do appreciate you coming down and having a chat with me this morning, because, um, look, I think the fans, you know, people, I, myself, growing up throughout ski racing, I'd go down and I'd buy Powerboat magazine before the internet and I'd read about Lester Fremantle and Moonshot and, you know, you've been around and you've done it all. So um, probably the first thing that I wanted to touch base with you was ski racing. I mean, where did it come from? Most of our people that we speak to grew up skiing at, you know, insert lake or river X here. Was it the same for you? It was basically we used to camp at Dews Creek at Eildon. And then on a couple of occasions, we wondered when we were going skiing, what were all those noisy boats doing out and all making a big racket on the lake? And that was our first introduction to it, to just see it. And then we watched it a couple of times. They went from the Eildon Ski Club and used to race up and down the main arm of Eildon. So my first introduction... Um, probably about 16 or 17, was um, at Eildon. And you were a skier yourself? Yeah, just a social skier. Not very good. <laughs> but <laughs> you I, and I both. Well, I used to like to drive the boats all the time. So I, I had a passion for, the, for the, the boats and skiing 
at Lake Yield and probably starting at about 16 or 17. Yeah, it's interesting because that's fine. You, you see the boats and the racing, you think that looks fantastic, but how do you go from that to actually getting into your own boat? Well, we had social boats, uh, two or three, um, powered by 100 Evinrude outboard. <laughs> Beautiful. A big V4. That's it. Yep. Um, so we just started doing that. And then the more interest that I got um, in the racing, the first boat we bought as a race boat was a Skicraft Interceptor. Yes. Which had a 454 in it. Yes. And it was... Mongoose. Purple, and it was called Mongoose. You Correct. Have done my research. You have. <laughs> so I bought that um, off a contact of Ron and Ray Craddocks from Skicraft. It was a second-hand boat. So we first um, probably started going to the races in the mid-70s, and that was just towing subbies and doing things like that. Yep. Towing, um, uh, we towed Lenny's son a couple of really? times. Yeah. Yes, Lenny used to give us a hard time. So, is that because Lenny he didn't want to ski behind Lenny? <laughs> <laughs> he definitely didn't want to ski behind Lenny. So we um, first went up to um, Eildon for a couple of races and just um, dabbled around at the time and just sort of were in awe of all the other boats that were around at the time. And I guess that's. Similar for all of us, isn't it? I mean, I know when I started out in 1993, which is a fair bit after you, but I, I remember rolling into Lake Cooper for the Nationals and looking at your boat, the Connolly, with the, the um, fluoro down the sides, which is probably the boat you had for the longest, I would reckon. Yeah, we had that boat for about 22 years. We had that for a long time. It had various incarnations on the way through. We built it for the 1990 Worlds in Darwin, and um, it was in the fluoro there where we towed Ian Dipple yes. uh, with Brendan observing to second place yes. behind Paul Robbo with Firebird, yep. which we were very proud of. And to this day, that's uh, considered an achievement that, um, that we're proud of. So, And the great Stefano Gregorio in third place. Yes, yes. He could have won every race, except um, they just went hard from the start. Yeah. And that was behind a BPM. Yep. which was a V-driven boat um, with an engine in it that looked like it was out of a tractor. <laughs> but no, they had a lot of fun, and he was a brilliant skier. Yep. And they just were on it from the start. But um, uh, they Italians, they certainly enjoy their racing. They do. They enjoy their partying afterwards yeah, as well. Yeah, funny that, yeah. Yes, Carlo Casser and um, Stefano Gregorio, uh, Big party animals, for sure. Great skiers as well. Oh, yeah. Look, we went up there um, with Ian. Um, we just had our first child, Stephanie, and I said to Betty, oh, well, you better stay home and this, that and the other, and we'll just go out and do the racing, and I think I got no way. <laughs> and so Stephanie was the team mascot at the 1990 Worlds, and um, every time we couldn't find Stephanie at six weeks of age, there'd be a robo of some description holding her going, isn't she cute? <laughs> so the robos um, certainly looked after her. That's fantastic, isn't it? I guess that's the ski racing family. And I've, I've got questions here, Lester, but I t we tend to go off on different no, directions no. because, um, you know, I, the, the whole world's thing comes up and, and I want to go, you know, on about that Conley and stuff. 
Um, you did have some other boats, and I just, we'll just go back a little bit um, prior to that. I mean, you did the whole V-Drive thing for quite some time, yep. but you're also very early in the whole Stern Drive deal as well, weren't you? I mean, you're one of the first guys to be into Stern Drives. Well, what we did is we had, um, after the Interceptor, we had a Ramsey Puma with a 350, which was a good all-round boat, which was V-driven. Um, and then after that, in 19... About 1979 or 80, we bought our first stern drive boat, which was Roger Connolly's old Alltalk. Yes. And it had a six-litre engine with a Mercury package, and that was in 19, about 1980, so it was early in the piece. That's interesting you say the Mercury package, because... You know, when I got into it, there was really not many boats getting around with a Merc Well, package. they were the first of them with twin carby 350s. They were a six-litre engine with a two-drive um, package on it. So we bought the boat off Roger and um, then just prettied it up a bit the way we do and build our own trailers the way we do, and we went and raced that in the early stages. And the highlight for me of that was in 1980 at the Nationals at Wiseman's Ferry. I towed my uh, best friend of many years, Greg McCormack. Uh, we've known each other since he was four. Yep. And we ended up winning six litre at the Nationals. Yep. And um, to this day, I still tell him I carried him the whole way. <laughs> and you probably didn't know. <laughs> I, actually, I've seen some photos of that. Uh, there's some photos floating around on Facebook and the internet of that actual Nationals and picture of you in your wetsuit shorts as oh, well, look, standing up in the boat looking resplendent. You I need to say. delete them. <laughs> <laughs> but that was the six-litre boat, which was a beautiful boat. And then uh, we ended up selling that boat to Stan Nager. Right. And that became Moonshine, yes. which Stan ran successfully in six litre uh, for two or three years before he went on to buy Ian Trick as Connolly, um, and that became Network. Yes. So we did. So we sold that boat to Stan. Then we built another uh, Connolly, uh, which we put a tunnel ram big block in. Right. And that had a two-drive on it as well. So it was a move up to eight-litre then? Yes, yep. yes. And so we did that, and then we ran that for about a season with the tunnel ram engine in it. Yep. Um, and that went well for us, but we had drive issues with that because the, the two drives were a bit fragile. Yeah, you've got a lot more torque. That's with right. Ram. And so what happened at, after that, is we actually did the reverse. Most people were going to the stern drive boats and we'd gone to them early. Yeah. But I didn't like the fragility of the drives at that time. Yep. Because um, I think Dick Taylor rebuilt one for us and then Ron <laughs> Bell did. Ron Bell. And that's Bell, where I first man. met Ron. Yep. And then um, I looked at the V-bottom Everinghams Yes. which Bert, uh, Bruce and Malcolm Everingham had built. They built the first one. Uh, John Catania with Assassin had gone to them with a 19.6 flat bottom and said, we need a V-bottom. So they put a V-bottom on the bottom of the flat bottom circuit race boat, and that's how the V-drive boat 
That's how the V bottom yeah, really? Everingham started. So John Cattadia was the man. Yeah, yeah. John went to them and said, "What? Well, this is what we need." And Bert fluffed around and said, "In the end, yes, as Bert <laughs> did." And then they did it. Yeah. And so we got to the point of I didn't like the reliability issues I was having and I wanted to get a supercharged engine. So we basically went to the simplicity of the V-Drive and the 20-foot Everingham. So we actually went backwards in terms of everybody was going that way. And we ended up doing that. Oh, that was uh, early, early, yeah, about early 80s. Yep. And we ran that with just an, an engine for a short period of time down here. Then I went to Russell Jones. Yes, great engine builder. Mr. In Russell Sydney. Jones, yeah. I a lot kept, of sprint car stuff, I think. Yes. Russell did, yeah. And I looked at all the engines and who was finishing and who was winning. Yep. And in the inboards, they all seemed to have Russell Jones engines on it. So I went to Russell. And he built me an engine which we put in the um, in the Everingham, and we literally drove it from the boat ramp. After testing it at Windsor, I said to Russell, "What do I look out for?" He said, "See that big light on the dash? If <laughs> oil that, pressure. If that that is oil <laughs> pressure. If that comes on, turn it off. Yeah. What else have I got to look for? Make sure there's water coming out the exhaust pipes." <laughs> And true to his word, we drove from Sydney to Yarrawonga for a two-day meeting. And basically from that moment on, we basically finished all the time. And that was the start of getting established uh, in the winner's circle. That with David Tarry, Link Kelly and Graham O'Brien observing, we started to become successful here on the Victorian scene which went very well and we won all the series and things down here. And then the following year, I got the opportunity to tow Jeff and John Hardacre in yes. Sydney. Yep. So This we, is great because I've got these questions here and you're just answering them <laughs> for me, so keep going. So we, we went to um, the Nationals in Perth Yep. Um, and towed the boys over there and then we basically ran with them in Sydney from that time on yep um and did the point scores in sydney and so on so it was a transition from running here to running um the point scores and things in sydney well that's actually one of my questions i want to maybe elaborate a little bit more on that i mean i when i started ski racing i thought you were from sydney originally yeah Um, that's still a common misconception and i probably don't do anything to (laughs) um to correct to dispel it Tell me about that and, um, you know, the, the fact that, I mean, who doesn't want to race on the Hawkesbury? Let's be honest, it's absolutely beautiful up there. Is, was that the conscious decision or was it because you had the Hardacre Brothers? Why? The conscious decision was from when I first started ski racing, I was always taken with the Hawkesbury River and the bridge to bridge. Absolutely. My, that, my yeah. obsession about ski racing is based on that race. Yeah. It okay. still is. You Even mean, though I might not go every year, it's my favourite. You've gone to the last question, was your favourite race and why? I kind of probably knew the yeah, answer. Look, but... it's just a magnificent river and you go in totally changing conditions. Yeah. You start at Dangar Island, yeah. you have to temper what you're doing through to Bar Point and up past Spencer 
And it's a long way. It's a long way. And yeah. so it just has so many elements yeah. to it is, is one of the appeals of it. Yeah, it's, it's, it, I agree. Um, I've, you know, being a Victorian, you're supposed to think the Southern 80 is the greatest race. I love the Southern 80, as we all do. Yep. Um, but uh, I, my first river race was the Sydney Bridge to Bridge. And interestingly, just a quick one for you, and I know this is not a, a Dave Bishow interview, but Jeff Hardacre, I walked into Hardacre's Ski Mart in 1993, and Jeff was operating a ski shop at that That's time. That's right. And he said to me, Davo, you know how he speaks, Jeff. Yep. He's a legend. I love Jeff. And uh, he said, Davo, what we'll do is I'll take you down the river on the Thursday before the race and uh, I'll show you the lines. And, uh, you know, my first ever river race, Jeff Hardacre, the guy that I've read about, skiing behind you, takes me down the Hawkesbury River. I thought it'd be like a car racing buff jumping in with Peter Brock and doing a lap of Bathurst. Like, it was just phenomenal. So look, I totally get where you're coming look, from. Look, the, the era with Jeff and John and Ken and Reg and Sherl and Sue, it, um, it was a fantastic period. Yep. They were a hell of a lot of fun. Jeff would be, to this day, the most professional skier that I have been involved with. Before the days of GPSs and everything else, he had his watch on his wrist while he was racing. He yep. knew exactly what he was about and lines. They used to take me down there endlessly showing me the lines. Yes. The only Did he make you turn around and make sure your wake was nice and straight? Yes, we had to do all that. Yep. Um, although we used to have to stop at Brooklyn. I think we had to get another bottle of scotch for the trip back. <laughs> Haig, I think it was when I took yes, it. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but look, their passion, and they had spent many years with John Catania with The Assassin, and John decided to give it away. And that's when I came into the breach with them. And it was just a fantastic period. But it comes down to the old thing. Winners are grinners and the rest can make their own <laughs> arrangements. Because at that stage, we won more than we didn't. Yep. We won all the four major classics in one year. Because there was only four at yep. that stage, which was Southern Haiti, yep. um, Bridge, Grafton and Mildura. Mildura. It, and, and back to back... Uh, 85, 86 for the bridge to bridge. But that 85 season must have been unreal to take the Southern 80 down as well. Well, the, 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 um, the season with the Southern 80, we actually won the Southern 80 with David Tarry yes. and yep. Link Kelly. Yep. And Tassie or David Tarry, uh, not many people still know, we actually had a fall. Really? Uh, he, he lost his hand, he slipped out on one <laughs> corner, so we lost time, and so we ended up doing it in 39 minutes, something or other, but it was good enough to win because of, I think a few of the other people like uh, Ted and Murray and all that, and Peter Waterhouse had probably had uh, problems, so you... So we managed to get home. So we won the Southern 80 with, with those guys and with Graham, Yep. and that was a delight. What? What? Why not the whole, uh, the Hardacre Boys? Oh, we hadn't one? actually at that point of time. I'd just done the Nationals with the Hardacres, and 
we were going to do the following season starting with the boys. Yes. So that's okay. so it commenced from there. And uh, Link and um, Tazzy were fine with it all. So it sort of was circumstantial that we ended up doing it all in the one year, yeah. but with a different team. You must have come across some, some unbelievable guys in those periods. Like I think about the boats, you know, the Mike Deminxes with the Thundernuts, um, Ted Hurley with Rolco, you know, the Island Cooler um, with Dennis Robottom. Yeah. Um, they must have been fun guys to race against and serious guys to race against. Networks, Dan Nazar, you mentioned as well. Look, yeah, look, on the Victorian scene um, with Ted, um, with Rolco, which then Murray Price bought. Yeah. And Murray was very passionate about it as well. And then Ted went from that to recovery. And Ted and Butch and, you know, the whole family, I mean, their passion knows no bounds. Yeah. And then Dennis Rowbottom. Yep. Um, with his commitment to it all and the Nankervises that did all the work on that boat to make that the success that it was. Yes. Uh, they just micromanaged and did a lot of things with that. And then a lot of the young people will be thinking, Leo, but you're talking about Alan and Keith, of course. Oh, Alan and Keith. Yeah. Uh, yes, of course, Alan and Keith. And then Leo was just the young buck uh, yeah, learning yeah. on the way through. Alan's son, yeah. Yeah, so they, they were passionate and did lots of six-litre boats and eight-litre boats and virtually Stevens's and Everingham's that were all blueprinted by then. Everybody that that was out of their stable and Southern 80 was a big thing, obviously, for here. They, back then, were concentrating on handling and getting things to turn and do it all. So none of it's new. It's just you just worked with the technology that was available. And, you know, Peter, like Peter Waterhouse with locomotion. And the stern drive boats started to run down there, but with limited, you know, success. But, yeah, back in that time, um, with the Everinghams, mainly blown uh, carby, because that was what was available to us. That's what you had. And and Nankervis were big on importing engines. Oh, look, I used to, for even back in the 70s, I'd be up there a lot on weekends looking at what was in next and bench racing with Keith and yeah. Alan would be out in the workshop doing all the work yeah. um, in that context with Leo and then the other sons got involved along yes. the way yep. and Keith was just passionate with it all and yes, it was um, certainly a central point down here for a lot of the technology. Incredibly sad, really, wasn't what happened with, you know, that workshop on Lake Epilogue. Yeah, look, we used to all be up there, even if we weren't customers all the time, using the boat ramp and doing yeah. that and chatting with Keith and and throwing the sticks for the dogs while we were standing <laughs> there talking. So Because Lake Epilogue was a magnificent venue, and we used yeah. to race from there a lot yeah. yes. in those earlier years. I, the point there, it was, it was a great place to race. Yeah, well, I grew up at Epilock, I don't know if you yeah. know, but my mum and dad had a caravan, that was my go-to, that was my Eildon, you know, and uh, oh, I used to roll into Nankervis and, and I saw your boat there plenty of times and just dribble and drool and, and you know, talk to Alan and Keith, I probably annoyed the crap out of them to be honest, but uh, it was it was almost spiritual going there, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, and look, um, Mike Dominguez was with Nankervis's for a long time. Um, with Thundernuts and various boats that he yeah. had. So, look, there's been a lot of um, successful races and 
in Victoria in particular, the, the Nankervis family synonymous with that. Who stands out in your mind? And you've raised, like, bear in mind, we've gone from the 70s and you're still competing to this day, and, and we'll get to that a little bit later on, but in your mind, who stands out as sort of the hardest, most professional guy in terms of boat drivers, I guess, we're talking about here? Um, can you narrow it down to one, or, or is there? Look, I was quite happy running close to most of those people that I've mentioned, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. And we all trusted um, racing each other. Um, I think basically the probably two standouts through, through the whole period uh, would be, and not that I was racing at the same level as them in latter years, because I wasn't, yeah. but Mark Cranny and Greg Houston would stand out as, as super professional yeah. in everything they'd done with it all and as racers. Um, because they left nothing, no stone unturned. Um, Don Gully, similar. Yeah. But but as I said, I wasn't racing against them as much at the level they've been running at, but they would be probably my two standouts. And absolutely understandable. I mean, those guys, no love lost between those two boys, but that's what competitors do, isn't it? You know, I mean, there's F2 drivers out there that I don't get along with, and it's probably only because Look, we're racing each other, but they did take the sport to another level. Dave, there's, there's, especially when we were doing a lot of circuit racing stuff, you just know in eight levers certain people you'd run tight with and others you'd give more room to because everybody's different and you'd just try and do it as best as you can do it. But they would be probably the two I would mention on the top of my head and no doubt that'll cause trouble. (laughs) (laughs) Well, if it causes trouble, it causes trouble, Lester. We're not here to uh, fluff it up, are we, here on On The Rope? And now the latest and hottest tips from one of the world's best in all things ski racing. It's over to Jason Wormsley, a.k.a. Ziggy. So once you go ahead for a 2020 season, uh, what should skiers be doing to prepare for that first race? What I'd do is I'd have a look at your calendar, plan out your racing schedule. Um, you know, the first, first big race generally for most of us is the Hawks to Run 20, which is one of the longest, most gruelling races on the calendar. Training for that sort of race would be you know, more predominantly looking at hand strength, leg strength, neck, those things that let you down. A lot of the time, you know, your first race might be a Grand Prix style race. So you'd be looking at doing some longer runs, some hills and burpees and, you know, heart rate training, try and get that intensity up. But yeah, look, generally just, just, just look at what, what you've got coming up and try and try and pick what your weakness will be for that particular race. Something you said to me before, and this is not on my, my question sheet, but it just Spark something in my mind. You are a student of the sport of water ski racing because you said to me a little bit earlier on, you mentioned Jacob Hinterholzel, who's a young guy who's driving a velocity boat. He's, he's put a lot of time and effort in, and he's done really well. I find it fascinating that, you know, as a superclass competitor, and a guy that's been around a long time, you're still reading the results and seeing what's going on. Look, for whatever reason, it interests me. And I'm interested in what's going on with the younger skiers coming through and people with the boats and what's going on. So I still read and keep across and listen to what's happening with the people developing through the sport because that's what it's about. Even back in the 70s, it was family groups that would come in and work their way through just as they have done. 
and they just it's just different things and when they get different boats and things and we all do things different ways but you know going to the worlds and doing what they did and learning what you learn yeah that's what it, it you're going to make mistakes you just try and um, God, don't I know that yeah lesson. we all make <laughs> all you've got to do is try and make um, have things you know just keep trying yeah. and you'll make... Because people say to you, oh, with some of the boats, you've got this to work and that to work and the other to work. And you go, well, you learn by making lots of mistakes. Absolutely. But you've got to learn from them. Well, another interesting thing about yourself too, and I know we're not making this about you because you've told me very strictly that we're not allowed to make this about you, but you are on here and we're chatting and it's just stuff that interests me. So if it interests me, it's probably going to interest the fans out there. But you've done things a little bit differently through your career and I, I, I feel like that's because you've got a pretty inquisitive mind and and you probably don't look at convention and just think, oh, because everybody else is doing that, that's what I should do. You, you do look outside the box, would that be fair? Um, it's probably why I'm still doing the boats and, and doing it because that's what's always appealed to me is technology and developments and learning because uh, our business background's engineering, yeah. not that I know much, but <laughs> I like all that side of things. So with boat developments, handling, as you well know, mm. five boats out of the same mould can all be entirely different. So you must take them on their merits. Yeah. When I mentioned earlier about the drives, with the Mercury Stern drives, when we did go back in, like with the Connolly, with the one we kept the longest that we had for 20-odd years, we started with a five-drive on that because they just released it in, in um, substitute as a three-drive. So I went with a five-drive. And then the six... Sorry, I just pulled you yeah. up there. But I'm going to say, and I might be wrong, but I don't think I am. You're the first guy to do a six-drive, aren't you? Yeah, everybody said it'll be too heavy yeah. and this, that yeah. and the other. Yeah, but that only just popped into my well, head Well, that, yeah. that occurred because with the, when the five drives first came out, I dealt with Ron Bell, who I had a very close association with, and Mercury. And we were found early on we were having gear troubles uh, with them fretting gears yep. so we were getting they weren't failing but we were having to pull them apart because you were checking them yeah they would have been failing yeah yeah so we worked with mercury on that this was around 1990 around the world time around the worlds so we worked with mercury and then um, they did some gear upgrades and alterations and then uh, with Ron rebuilding them because he was always pristine with everything. Yeah. Some people had rebuild them like they were a swash, swatch watch, whereas Ron <laughs> had rebuild them like they were a Swiss watch. Yeah. And if the preload wasn't right, he'd pull them apart and Again. put them back together. Yeah. Anyway, once we did those gear changes with the, the five drives were fine. And they were quite light, the boats liked them, they handled well, and we had a good run with them, even with the bigger horsepower that we were putting in. But then at one stage, Mercury said, we're going to obsolete them. Yeah. You won't be able to get parts anymore. And they were getting very old. Yeah. yeah. And so, you, so they were going to retire the product. So that's when I said, well, um, and discussed it with Malcolm Priest and with Ian Tricker, and went, well, let's put a six drive on it. And <laughs> did they all look at you like Yeah, they all looked at me like I was on something. <laughs> um, 
and I said, I've worked it all out, the weights are this, that and the other, they are heavier, it's on a 10-inch standoff box, it's further back, it's all of the above. Yeah. So, and we put it it's on our... super strong. And we put it on our Connolly with about 1,500, 1,600 horsepower, and the hull weight, that Connolly weighed 270 kilos, dry. Wow. For its whole life, that's yeah, what it weighed. It's incredible. So, we put it on that, and um, we decided to see how it would perform because the five drives were getting obsoleted. Yeah. So I'd sold the two five drives I had and then we booked the six drive on it and I was in Melbourne and I went, oh, the weight might not be distributed correctly. Oh, well, we'll see. <laughs> well, I could fly up and drive it. No, I know. We'll put Guru in it. Guru can go out with Malcolm. Malcolm can stand on the back, and if it flips over backwards, we know know it's no good. And and Guru will shake himself off and go, what did you do that to me for? Well, he'd fallen out of a few bucks. Yeah, I know. We'll put him up the bank, so that's okay. So anyway... Ian Trigger, for those of you listening, if you don't know who the Guru is. So it ran fine, and um, we then took it to, I think it was at um, Sackville uh, for the hot shots for the bridge. So we had lots of inquisitive eyes and there would have been, and I'm not even going to name some of them, but there would have been about 10 or 15 people high end in the sport going, that's a waste of time, that's too heavy, that's not going to be yep. any good. Yep. Well, within six months they all had them. Yeah. 100%. So, look, it was a necessity. The, the five drive was good, but it was a necessity, and it does come at a weight uh, disadvantage, yeah. but the durability of them, and as the boats have got bigger and bigger, it's all balanced back out again. Yeah, and then into the Mercury packages, which yes, is that's that, correct. that next yeah. step, which yeah. they came with yeah. as well. Mate, you've, you've seen the highs of the sport, you've, and, and I, when I say the highs of the sport, I'm not just talking about wins, I'm talking about friendships, people, you know. Yeah, it's places. interaction with people. It's what yeah. it's all about, really, at the end of the day, because I don't know, if, have you paid the house off from any of your wins? I've told my wife for the last <laughs> 40 years that the ski racing costs 50 bucks a week. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, well done. I hope she's not listening to this <laughs> podcast. And if you are, darling, it does cost 50 bucks a week. Mate, but I did want to touch on, you, you did have quite a low light there, Southern 80, a couple of years ago. Um, I just And we've spoken about this, and you're happy to uh, talk about it. But um, tell me a little bit about Kevin Bartrick and, and what went on there. Well, to this day... Um, we're all devastated when we lost Vardy. Yep. Um, he was a lovable rogue of the sport, yep. friend to everybody. He was. And we'd skied him off and on and with Jamie. And um, unfortunately, um, the incident occurred at the Southern 80. And as I said, we're all devastated. Yep. And it doesn't go away. You still feel yep. it. But... You know, you think of Vardy and you think of Danny Cropper as yeah. a pair. Yeah. And, you know, going back to Syndicate with Ruddy. Yes. Um, Southern 80, winning the hot shots and, yeah. and just being manic with it all. Yeah. Then also the two of them with Ross Christensen or Fish. Yeah. With okay. Top Gun. 
yep. and did many years of that. Yep, and, so, and running over in New Zealand. Yes, well, as well, yep. in the last couple of years when I've skied the Jamison family from New Zealand, yes, they were all well known to Vardy because I think uh, DC and Vardy in New Zealand, um, I'm sure there's a wanted... Uh, Wanted board out for them over there. I think when they went over there, they never wanted to come back. Sometimes, well, there was conjecture whether I was allowed to come back too. Um, they, actually, I reckon there's a plaque for those two guys over in New Zealand. I go over for the Bruce Ridge quite a bit. No, look, that, and, and the thing, everybody loved Vardy and we're all just very sad about it. And um, I am most grateful for the unearing support I've had from Danny. All the way through, which means a lot to me. Yeah, uh, Danny Cropper's a legend, always will be. Um, well, mate, well, that's, we won't dwell on that too much, but uh, he was a great man. It's great to see that you're still up and racing because, like, at the end of the day, I'm pretty sure Vardy would be going left to get in your boat and go uh, racing, son. That, yeah, as you could imagine, it was like that was it. Yeah. Um, but, you know, over time and also with Danny's urgings, um, as I said, he's uh, been a fantastic support, uh, especially because he was his best mate, and so that has been invaluable. And that got us to go, let's just puddle along and get back out there. And enjoy the sport for water. That's right. Absolutely. Yeah. And big shout out to DC as well. He's been through a little bit of a health scare, but yes, he's, he's yeah, going I, all right, I think. Now. Yes, I think he's, um, he's, uh, he's coming along pretty good. He's looking pretty fit. He is so, looking very fit. He's so, lost a few kilos. Yeah, so he's still immersed in the sport with his kids and doing the stuff. So, yeah, we, we still remain in contact. So who knows what's in front of us? Well, a bit of co-commentary with me does as well. So uh, I might have to carry him a little bit because he had the problem with the throat. So but I'll carry him. No, no, he's good. And, <laughs> and when it comes to commentary, um, listening to you guys doing it, is a lot of fun. It makes the sport a lot more colourful. And going back over the years, back in the 70s, um, in the Victorian races, we used to have Ron, Ron and Maureen Baker that yes. used to do the commentaries. Uh, they had a boat called Shemeron, yes, which was a six-litre Haynes Hunter boat. They used to tow their daughter, which was the first race in the morning. Yep. And then Ron would take over the microphone with his co-commentator VB and, <laughs> and the commentary got better and better as the day went on and so but it was so colorful and it was just even though we're all serious competitors yeah and in New South Wales after that Norm Griffin of yeah. Louise J fame with his boat. Norm used to do the commentary all the time. Yeah. Wasn't entirely accurate all the time, but none of that matters. So I do think it does make a big difference, and I know people are reluctant at times to come up when you want to interview them when they've just finished a race or done something, but it seriously makes... It, it just makes for a lot of fun. Well, I think you need to be that conduit between the crowd and, and on the bank and, and the competitors, you know, and that's the way I've always looked at it. And, and I, I take it as some fun. I started at Lake Cooper commentating yeah. myself. And uh, with uh, Lisa Clancy, she's now Khan back in those days, but uh, we just used to jump on the mic. But that turned into television and, and all sorts. Well, you but also asked me 
how I keep up with what's happening with the juniors and everything else. And part of it is listening when you guys are talking about it and what it is, because that gives you more information and what's going on. Mate, that's much appreciated. We do it because we love it, same as you race because you love it. But um, um, we're sort of uh, getting down into it. One thing I did want to um, touch base, being a boat driver myself, clearly after my world's effort, not a good one, um, but uh, I did want to touch base with you on the difference. I've never driven, I've driven one V-drive boat in my life. Right. Scared the crap out of me. I wouldn't get in one again. They're frightening, big engine. It's ridiculous. But tell me the driving styles that you've had to adapt to over the years because mate, a stern drive I guess is, is a bit like an outboard, more like an outboard than, a, than an inboard and you've done the outboard thing as well, yep. maybe touch on that also so you, you're going from V drives through to stern drives back to V drives and then an outboard as well and, and we'll finish off with that, that outboard, you can tell me a little bit about how that all came about <laughs> Well the, the V drive um, at the higher end with the Everingham um, with the foot override cav plates, you had manual adjustment. Um, you would get your straight edges out and make sure the plate settings were either parallel or with the angles you wanted at static. Yep. And then basically you needed to get propellers and things to get enough bow lift to keep the bow well up. Yep. And then we used to set a fixed setting and then just have the override pedal on the left yep. to dab down which would just in settle. short periods just settle the boat yeah and so i always felt you needed to keep the bow up yep. um some issues would occur with boats because if you're running them too flat to the water and then you were turning with the plate and the boat too flat to the water. It had wrong side onto the other yeah. side of the V. Yep. And so that's where a few incidents occurred over time. There was something called the Erringham Roll there for a while, wasn't well, there? Trevor yeah. Johnson? I yes, think yes, the few, it, it occurred. And look, my feeling to that was I used to fly the boat a bit more and then just through the corners use the foot override. And just you would feel the water pressure through the left pedal. And then, so try and keep the left-hand side of the, bow, the boat down, which is always useful in a left-hander. <laughs> and then um, just, just feather it or feather the, the cab through the corner. So my answer to that was, if you had the boat too flat on the water, that was where you got the issue of it wrong siding. Yeah, yeah. Now... It only ever did it to us a couple of times, probably in the Southern 80. Yeah. And how I compensated for it is you had to do what went against your instincts. When it went to the wrong side, you had to still keep the power on but just ease it a little mm. and obviously not jump on the cav plate because it'll make it worse. And then the bit you had to do was steer with it not against it. Yeah. You had to just release the wheel a bit yes. and let it finish what it was doing yep. to pull it back up. Yeah. So if you had it too flat and you fought it with the wheel, I'm just speculating. Yeah, I that, agree. That's, yes. that's, and the thing you had to do is respect the boat. Always. Yeah. And yes, because 
They're a fantastic boat, um, but you just had to respect them. Yeah. And we also had a cut-out V in the middle of the cav plates yes, at the I've back, which yeah. reduced the rooster tail and spray, and I think may have assisted a little bit. But, look, um, we never did it, but it was probably more luck than good management. <laughs> well, when I jumped into my first outboard, I got in, it was a bullet. Um, God love the bullet, you know. I'm yes, a, I love yes, they're a great boat. They are. They take. They they teach you to drive. Um, when I first got in my first one, there's something wrong with this boat. It wants to wobble from side to side. I now know that's chine walking, and it's just something that a V-bottom boat does. When did you first experience that? It was probably in a in a stern drive boat, I'd imagine. Uh, yeah. What? It was probably in the first Connolly, and it was just getting the feel for it. And once again. A bit of a theme often it was too much boat in the water yeah and so the more you had keel in the water the more you would be subject to that but it comes down to the old thing propeller selection drive height yeah it's the same with outboards it's the yeah. same with stern drives yeah so i always felt if you had trimmed to a point where it was not ridiculously high, but clear that that was something where I learned with the uh, chine walking that trimming it up was not radically that did help that circumstance. Yeah. But once again, same old story. If you run the boat and you think it's not right, it's not right. Yeah. Go back. Run with your instincts. Go back and go through everything again and go propeller, drive height, trim. So don't just think you can drive through a problem. You can't. Now, one thing I do love about your career, Lester, is that, you know, generally we have inboard guys and outboard guys. I'd call you an inboard guy, but there was a little period there where you went to the twin rig. Tell me about that. Well, what happened was... What did you call it? Um... Did you give it a name? No, I don't think we ever... Oh, you didn't na- give it a name. I don't okay. think we ever na- named it. Actually, I think at Botany Bay we did when it had carburetors on it and it had a fire in it, and I think John Hardacre named it the Hindenburg. <laughs> I, think, I think we wrote that on it. No, what, we had the Everingham at the time, and then Mercury were developing the first of the Nicacel blocks, yep. and they were genuine 300 horsepower... The, yep. the two engines we had at 7,000 RPM. Yep. So I'd been talking about looking at something like that. Roger Connolly was keen to build a 21 for it. Yep. So we still had the Everingham, but we built the boat. Ian Tricker rigged it out. Yep. The and guru of the guru. Yep. Did he have complete marine at that stage? No, that was after with? that. It was after that, yep. And um, that was, yes, he, that was in a period in between that and, his, and TR. Yeah. Um, and he built it for us and rigged it all out. And it had these Mercury engines on it, um, which Ken Clark from Mercury yeah. had, had um, organised. Yep. Yeah. And it, it basically did what they said it would do. Yeah. In other words, we ran it. But if you want to know the least confident I was first driving a boat for the first time, <laughs> it was that one yeah. because it was light. Yeah. They were 
And not that big lump of cast iron. No, no, and it would run the speed. It was an excellent boat. Yeah. Um, but we did it to, to um, see what these engines were like, and they were very good. Um, but it was like, do I want to keep campaigning that? And then in the end, um, we sold the boat to Don Banning, which it became Crowboats. Crowboats, yeah. Right? Okay. And so Don... So look... I loved it, and the tech, once again, it was technology. Ian did a lot of development on it. Roger Connolly did. We all enjoyed doing the project. Yeah. Um, And, yes, I did get a handle on driving it, (laughs) Um, and it was a delightful boat. It was probably a bit ahead of its time. Yeah. And it was just a magnificent combination, and... Basically, what Mercury said those engines would do, they did do. Well, mate, as as a sport, I think you and I will both agree that it's 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 about we love our boats. You and I are the same in that department, but it's probably more about the places we go and the people that we hang out with. Um, just before we finish up today, and, and I have to thank you. You've been very generous with your time, and um, and I know you're a very private guy. And and you did say something to me the other day that um, you you wouldn't normally do it, but you are because it was me. So I, that is I'm, correct. I really take that on board and appreciate that, Lester. But um, do you have? I'm going to throw the floor open, mate. Do you, anyone you want to thank? I mean, there's people that 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 you know in in any racing, ski racing, cars, whatever it is. There's people that you go through the journey with that things probably wouldn't have happened without. Is there anyone? particular like that well look first and foremost would be malcolm priest and karen pet at pfm because i've known them for many years um and malcolm has a passion for all the same things that i do and development and we can discuss all these things and each project uh, engenders from the one before. Yep. So even when we sell a boat, people wonder he's always building them and then gets them going and then sells them. And it's, it's because we enjoy the technology yep. and we work on the theory that we build it to the best of our ability and we hope somebody else likes it as well. So that would be first and foremost. But look, over the years... You've had various boat builders that I've dealt with a lot. We had the Everingham era, the Roger Connolly era, Rod Bickerton with Force. Speedmaster. Yep, Speedmaster. And all that side of things, all the people involved with those have always been good with me and entertained all my foibles (laughs) of... 300 spreadsheets and this is how I want it and drawing it up and then they usually go and do what they want to anyway <laughs> but but they they at least listen and because of the passion yeah so in that era and then going back to probably when I was racing all the time Russell Jones yeah. would stand out because he was that laconic and look that was in the era when we probably raced 18 or 19 times a year, yeah. mainly in Sydney and around the place. And so that era, um, when we were doing that, Russell was just, he would just get on with it and do it. And that brings to the other point, success and being at the top level 
there's no substitute for racing, racing, and racing. Yeah. When there's no nothing around it, like I don't race all the time. Yeah. We probably race six or eight times a year tops. Yeah. But the people like Greg Houston, Mark Cranny, and all through the years, you've got to do race 18, 19, 20 races a year because you keep honing what you're doing. Skills, yeah. So they would be um, Mark Lewins was also a very clever, yep. uh, deep thinker. Yep. And, of course, when he and Mike were um, uh, tragically killed on the Hawkesbury, yep. that uh, made a huge uh, dent in, in our world. Yeah. And yep. we still think of them today. I've probably forgotten a lot of people, but the reality is... We all worked together with her through over the years, and um, that's you know we just enjoy developing things and yep. just keeping things going. And um, if we still want to go racing, hopefully it'll get going again. Yes, um, but we should mention we are social distancing. Yes, we certainly are. Yep. But look, the thing with ski racing is everybody's endeavours and life and work. Once we actually go away to go ski racing for the weekend, we don't actually think about much else for that yeah. period of time. Yeah. So I guess it's the passion for the gear, the equipment, and just going and doing what we do. Going and doing it. And there's just one final one, which I meant to ask you earlier in the piece, but you answered so many of my questions in, without me even asking them, which has just been fantastic. It's, it's been great. I the Probably the coolest name on a ski race boat that I've ever seen other than Spinal Tap maybe Moonshot I love it where did it come from well just all, sounds fast all my boats over the years when we were at Eildon and sitting up till all hours of the night looking up at the moon <laughs> everything there was moonshine moon shadow moonlighter yeah right and so all the boats have always been called moon something yep so what happened is when we started racing, I always loved a boat from Queensland called Buckshot. Yes. Which was boat. Trevor Wellham. And it was a yellow Haynes Hunter with a blown engine and Tony Longhurst used to ski behind <laughs> it. Go. And yeah. they used to have fun. Yeah. So I always loved that name. Yeah. So basically when we got, I think it was the Everingham, because the Connolly... Uh, no, the, the second Connolly was Moonshot. So I like that name. So I just put the two together, Moonshot. Yep. Moonshot. So, and, uh, so that's where it came from. Sounds fast. Sounds awesome. Don't change it. It's no, we uh, won't. Synonymous. Lester, thank you so much again. I know that you, you're quite a private guy and this probably doesn't come... Although the way you've spoken today has been very natural and, and very laid back. I hope you've enjoyed it as much as I have and certainly as much as the fans will enjoy listening to it. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, mate. Wow, what a wonderful story and thanks so much for joining us, Lester. On the rope, we do appreciate your time. And, of course, a fantastic job done there by Bisho. I don't actually know Lester personally, but after listening to that podcast, I'm pretty sure we'll get on just fine, and I'm looking forward to meeting him somewhere down the track. Anyway, it is prize time giveaway, and it is over to McKelly for the question. Yeah, cheers, Lump. This week's question is 
Who did Lester Toe at the 1990 World Championships up in Darwin? Great question there, Mick. And if you do know the answer to that question, just head to our Facebook page and put it through our messenger. And I'm pretty sure that somebody will be in contact with you if you are the winner. And talking of Mick Kelly, uh, I really hope you enjoy that interview that he did with Ray Ball. It uh, certainly shows what two guys can do when they're just having a beer and a chat. Very interesting. Very interesting. Well done, Mick. And we couldn't do it with our great sponsors in Savage Force Merchandise, Bullet Boats, Rubber Jungle, Bad Lad Australia, and of course, Coldies, Toe Bars and Bull Bars. Uh, it is a time for us to go. And on behalf of the crew, which is obviously Chelsea Stevens, Mick Kelly, Jack Coldrake, Tim Horbury, Wade Bennett, Bisho, and myself, Lumpy. So until next time, you take care. And I'll see you on the water. Bye for now. Audio production has been proudly produced by Mal's Media in association with our On The Road podcast sponsors, Coldies Tow Bars and Bull Bars, Mark Savage Merchandise, Bullet Boats, Rubber Jungle Wetsuits, TJH Coaching and Consulting, Rapid Concepts, Sven Productions, Bad Lad Australia and Bisho Media.